Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. For Dan Brown, this is success. Do I enjoy what I do when I get up every morning? If the answer is yes, I, I feel successful. Dan Brown's writing career took off in 2003 when his novel, The Da Vinci Code, became an international bestseller. He's one of the world's top thriller writers, and he sold over 250 million books in his career. He's passing on some of his secrets in a new Masterclass video series. Business Insider senior video correspondent Graham Flanagan recently sat down with Brown. Graham, what'd you take away from this interview? The trait that I think Dan Brown kept emphasizing was trust, trusting yourself, having confidence in yourself. And when you're as successful as he is, you obviously have a lot of people telling you what they think you should do or what you're doing wrong or what you're doing right. And he just seems to be completely zeroed in on the process. And he has a, an uncanny ability to sort of mute all of that noise so that he can focus on what he has to do. So you actually started talking to him about how before he was a writer, he wanted to be a musician. He completely changed course as an adult because of some positive criticism that he'd gotten for an article that he wrote in like a local periodical. In university, I, I studied a lot of music and a lot of creative writing. When I graduated, I thought, I know I want to be creative in my life. Do I want to write music or do I want to write books? And at that point, at 22, I thought, well, music's going to be much more fun. And I moved out to Los Angeles, and it's generous to say I was a songwriter. I was a starving songwriter. Um, and I was there for a couple of years, signed a, signed a record deal, and had a record uh, come out that sold about a dozen copies, most of them to my mom, and uh, simultaneously wrote an article for, a, for an alumni magazine about what it was like to be sort of a a preppy, geeky kid from Phillips Exeter Academy uh, living in Hollywood among punk rock musicians. And, and an agent, a literary agent, saw the article and called and said, I love the way you write. I think you're a writer. I said, no, no, actually, I'm a musician. And a couple years later, I actually had lunch with him. And he said, when you're ready to write, let me know. And uh, about a year later, I woke up and decided I was ready to write. Uh, wrote a novel called Digital Fortress, sent it to him. Now, I had failed endlessly in the music industry. This novel was picked up by the first New York editor who read it, uh, Tom Dunn over at St. Martin's Press. And I thought, wow, writing books is easy. Uh, of course, the book came out and did nothing. It was a, an instant failure. And my first three books were, in fact, uh, commercial uh, failures, I guess you would call them. They really didn't sell many copies. It was not until The Da Vinci Code came out that I had really any success at all. And, of course, the previous three novels – 
which had not sold, went on to sell, went on to number one on the bestseller list. I had not changed a word. And that's an important message to everybody, that some of these products and ideas that you have early in your career that may flop actually may be assets later in your life. They may, they may end up having an audience. You said you just said you struggled at first and your first few things you wrote did not do well. Was there ever a point at this, you know, when you were writing early on that you thought maybe I've tried it, maybe I should pivot to something else? Uh, Yes, there was actually. I had written The Da Vinci Code. I had finished it. It had not been published yet. And the galley came out, the advanced reading copy, and I took it out to a park and sat down with it and read it in a whole day, read the whole thing from cover to cover and thought, if this book doesn't work, then I shouldn't be a writer. Because to my taste, this is a terrific book. This is a book I would want to read. And when you're a creative person, all you have to guide you is your own taste. I don't care whether you're a, you're a painter, a musician, or a writer. You have to create the piece of art, uh, you know, the, the piece of music, the, the literature that you like, and then hope other people share your taste. So when I read The Da Vinci Code and thought, I think this is this is exactly what I set out to do. If it had failed, I would have had to assume nobody shares my taste. So therefore, it's impossible for me to be a writer. I'll, I'll go do something else. So what happened? When did you realize that the Da Vinci Code was a success? Yeah, it was, it was about six months before it came out. The pre-orders were so high from Barnes & Noble. This was back in the days of Borders and Barnes & Noble and all the independent booksellers. It was a much different market. There was an enormous buzz among booksellers saying, we as booksellers love this novel. We know we can hand sell it to everybody who walks in the door. And so Random House kept calling saying, wow, you know, they just they doubled their order. They tripled their order. They quadrupled their order. And they actually put me on book tour four months before the book came out. And they said, we want you to go meet all the booksellers. I said, I don't understand. They said, they love your book. They just want to know you're not a jerk. Just go have dinner with them. <laughs> and I met all the CEOs and all the independent booksellers. And it was a lot of fun. That was in the days when we hand sold books to, to readers. So how did you process the success? I know in the first week of that book going on sale, uh, it was just an insane. It was like a phenomenon, an instant phenomenon. Just you as a person who'd been starting out as a musician, struggling as a writer uh, before this piece, and then this happens. How do you even process that? Uh, it, it was difficult. I, I, I was very, very grateful, of course. Uh, you, you kind of think every day you're going to wake up and find out it was all a dream. You pinch yourself at saying, okay, this is actually happening. Yes, I'm, this is what's happening. This is how many books we sold today. I guess I'm going to go be on the following TV shows. I, the book has sold around the world. At, at some level, you just sort of laugh and say, wow, how lucky am I? It applies pressure, of course, because uh, you have such a big readership and you want to make sure that what you create is worthy of their time and makes them happy. And nobody ever feels like, oh, you know what? He had some success and now he's not even trying. I actually end up trying harder now that I have had some success. Why did The Da Vinci Code do so well? What was it that connected with so many people? Yeah, I mean, some of it was luck. It was timing. It was unplanned timing. When I started that book, I just I wanted to write a book about religion. I grew up in a very religious household. I'd always struggled with the battle between science and religion. I'd had some experiences that, that had led me away from the church. And I wanted to write an alternative story of Jesus. What would it mean for Christianity if, if Jesus were not literally the Son of God, if he were a mortal prophet? I sort of felt like, well, that, that's an okay question to ask. You know, of course, the book comes out, not everybody thought it was a great question to ask. It became very controversial. But it came out just by luck at a point when a lot of people were questioning the church. There had been a lot of scandal. 
people were looking for a different voice. They were saying, wait a minute, like if the church isn't telling us the truth about this, maybe they're not telling us the truth about the story of Jesus either. Now, I didn't set out to convert anyone to my way of thinking. This is, this is a story that I told that made sense to me, but it, it's a thriller. I happen to believe it, but that's sort of irrelevant with my readers. If you want to believe it, great. If you don't, it, it's a fun story. So it was timing, and also I had an absolutely amazing publisher. I, I changed publishers. I came here to, to Random House, Doubleday, and they read the first 100 pages of this novel, and before I had even finished it, they said, we love this. We're going to do everything we can to make this a popular book. And it just sort of took off. It was a real thrill. When it did generate controversy, how did you react to that? Yeah, you know what? This will sound naive, but I didn't anticipate any controversy. I grew up in a household that was encouraged questioning. And, you know, I, you know I'll never forget when I, you know, I grew up sort of believing in Adam and Eve. And then went to the Boston Museum of Science and saw this this exhibit on evolution. And went to my priest and said, whoa, 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 like which story is true? And this priest said, nice boys don't ask that question. And I immediately sort of went off in, into the world of science. That that really that was a, that was a moment. A fire under you. Yeah, it did. Because I thought, wait, you know, no, I was taught nice boys ask questions. Smart boys ask questions. You ask every question you have. And so when I wrote The Da Vinci Code, which literally asked a, a pretty simple question, not all that aggressively, just said, hey, what, what if this happened? And people were so angry. I, I was I was stunned. It, it took me, uh, I like to say it took me a long time to get used to it. I didn't have a long time. I, I was on talk shows with people outside boycotting, uh, you know, burning me in effigy. It was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> so I had to basically address the concerns, you know, the, the way I've tried to do everything with some integrity, with some honesty, and essentially say, look, I didn't set out to offend anyone. I set out to tell a story that made sense to me. And I have no vested interest in whether you believe the narrative of the Da Vinci Code or not any more than you believe the narrative of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I mean, it, it's, it's a story. To me, it makes more sense than what I learned in Sunday school. And I think the reason there was so much controversy is because it made sense to a lot of people. And because it was so popular. If that book had sold 1,000 copies, nobody would have boycotted it. The problem was... You know, everybody in every church was reading it and going into their church saying like, hey, wait a minute, I didn't know that the Council of Nicaea did this. Is that true? And it was really upsetting uh, to the church. What was the first professional decision that you made after the success of the Da Vinci Code where you decided this is going to be my next step? Yeah, it, it in word, trust. You have to trust yourself, meaning that you have a lot of people whispering in your ear, telling you which way to go, telling you you're good, telling you you're bad. You've got reviewers saying, this is the best book ever. You've got reviewers saying, this is the worst book ever. You've just got a lot of noise. And this idea of sitting down to write your next book, I struggled for a couple weeks saying, well, I would write a paragraph and say, well, now millions of people are going to read this. Is it good enough? And I would delete it. And at some point, you know, you become self-aware. You become the batter standing in the batter's box who's thinking of the mechanics of his or her swing. You become the singer who, who can't make the right noise because you're imagining how to move your vocal cords. Self-awareness for, for any creative person, or, or I'm imagining any CEO who's, who's working on gut, self-awareness is not helpful. And so for me, it was this trusting my gut and saying, wait a minute, just write the book you'd want to read. That's all you've ever been doing. These first four books, you sat down, and if you read the paragraph and you liked it, you said, okay, I'm done. So get back to that mindset where you say, just write for you. 
because other people share your taste. That was the first thing I did. So it sounds like you, you figured out a way to kind of alleviate the pressure. You compartmentalize and realize that whatever you're doing, you're doing for yourself. You are writing the book that you would want to read and then hoping other people share your taste. And in my case, at that point, I knew people shared my taste. And the worst thing I could do for my brand was to sort of chase what I thought they wanted. No, I know what they want. I just, it's what I want. And so just do what you, as a leader or, or an artist or whatever it is, want to do. Right. The self-awareness of, of artists and, and writers in particular, I can, I'm sure, can create a lot of anxiety. But, I mean, did you ever think, you know, you've seen a lot of authors that have had these big blockbusters uh, like Harper Lee, sure. J.D. Salinger. And did you ever think, okay, why do I need to try and top this? Why, why not just sit back and let the success of this book you know, give me the life that I want to have and, you know, not try and wade in those waters anymore. Yeah. Well, the life that I want to have is a creative life. And so rather than saying, I guess I'm done, now I can just sort of sip gin gimlets and, and look at the ocean, I thought, wow, well, now I have, I have the means to travel the world and write about different places. I can meet fascinating people. Uh, yes, there was a lot of pressure and there was some self-awareness along the way that, that got a little, you know, it became a muddled process. But... Uh, I navigated that and feel very, very fortunate that, uh, that I'm able to continue to be creative. And, and for most creative people, the process has to be enough. You look, at, you look at someone like John Grisham, you know, one of the most successful authors in history. He writes a book a year. He doesn't need the money. He doesn't need the accolades. He just loves to tell a story. And those are the people that are successful, the, the people who love what they do. When you sit down to decide what your next project is going to be, what drives the decision to continue with the, the Langdon saga or versus doing something completely different yeah it really it has to do with whether or not Linen, the character lining can bring a fresh look to a world or to a topic with the novel origin i really felt like langdon needs to be thrown into the world of modern art he knows nothing about it this will be amusing to watch him you know walk into the guggenheim and see a wheelbarrow full of jello under a spotlight and say yeah, i don't get it as an academic so from that standpoint, I felt like Langdon is the character. As I go forward, I'm looking at new projects. Um, it's very possible my next book will be a standalone thriller from a, in a totally different genre. What What is the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome uh, in your entire career? Wow, that there, there are so many, but I, I think I think just a level of calmness about what you do, about just trusting your process, saying you got this far, putting one foot in front of the other every morning, focusing and just doing what you do. And you need to put on the blinders and just keep doing that because the success that people have is often, you know, those seeds are built 20 years before their success. When I see at least creative people who go off the rails a little bit and try to try to say, oh, now I'm successful, I need to do something else. The answer is no, you don't. Like you, what you did to get here is what you need to keep doing. And that, for me, has, has been sort of the challenge to say, like, well, all these people are saying this and that, and there, there are all these distractions. The reality is if you want to stay successful, you need to realize that it's about hard work. It's not about necessarily positioning your brand and doing this and doing that. It's about actually creating the product that people read and immediately call a friend and say, have you read this? This is going to – you're going to love this. That's, that's the challenge, to stay in that mindset. 
So you've got a lot of wisdom and experience that, that people, I mean, obviously that they're going to, they're paying for, for with, through this masterclass product. Why did you decide to do this, this masterclass? You know, my, uh, my dad's a teacher. My mom's a teacher. I think teaching is the noblest of all professions. I've been a teacher. I love teaching. And I wanted to create a class that was full of specifics. Now, a lot of writing students hear ethereal advice. You know, write what you know, be passionate, show, don't tell. It's all true, but it's not all that helpful. And I wanted to really get down to the nuts and bolts of what it is to tell a story. And this is, this is a class that will help people write in their own voice. It will help them write the story they want to write, a, write, a story that's their own. This isn't about how to write like me. Some people love the way I write. Some people hate the way I write. It's about storytelling. And the amazing thing about story, when you step back from it, is you realize that every great story, whether it is an ancient myth or literary fiction or a modern thriller or a TV series that you're addicted to on Netflix, whatever it is, these stories all have the same exact elements. It's like a car. There are all these different kinds of cars. When you open the hood, you see the same stuff. Put together differently, model a little bit differently, but you don't have a car without a gas tank until Tesla came along. You don't, but, but I'm just saying that they all have the same, the same elements. And that's what this masterclass is about. What are the elements to storytelling? Whether you're writing scripts for TV, writing thrillers, writing literary fiction, it's all there. It's, it's all the same thing. And if I'd had somebody, if I'd had this masterclass, I would, I'd be a better writer today because I would have had a head start a long time ago to learn all these things that I've learned through trial and error, through the process of just creating. Did you, was it always all there for you? I mean, did you always just have that, the foundation and fundamentals of storytelling in, in your bones that allowed you to, to create? And- no, I had an appreciation of storytelling in my bones, but not, certainly not the knowledge of how to put them together. A lot of that is trial and error, and a lot of that is reading, critical reading. A lot of that was early on, all, all the writings of Joseph Campbell, this idea of the hero myth and the hero of a thousand faces, that this idea that there really is just one story. And we tell it over and over and over. And it's not about what happens. It's about how it happens. And, you know, we always joke. You look at Ian Fleming wrote James Bond, this amazingly successful series. And at the beginning of every James Bond, you say, well, there's a ticking clock. Uh, A bomb's going to go off. And is he going to get the girl? Well, of course, he's going to save the world. He's going to get the girl. The question is how. So that, that really is what this class talks about. How do you give the reader what it is they want in a way they don't see coming. What piece of advice would you give to the young Dan Brown that had, you know, yet to really figure it out, figure out the correct path to be on that probably would have gotten you to where you were faster? Yeah, I think it's about trust. I think that the creative process is filled with hesitation, is filled with self-doubt uh, for all for all artistic people. And it's it's one thing when you're successful to sort of say, well, I mean, this person says that I don't know what I'm doing, but, but those, you know, 37 million people say, yes, you do. Okay. You know, you have that to fall back on to say, well, I'm, I'm pretty successful. Early on in your career, no matter what your business is, you don't have that. You can't, you know, if, if you've got a business idea that a lot of people say, uh, I don't get it, but you really get it. Uh, I think I would have told Dan Brown, you get it. Just trust your gut. It's going to take some time to build this business, to build an audience, to build a craft. Don't worry quite so much. Just get back to work. So take me, I know this is something that people can find out in, about in detail if they take the master class. 
But I just want to know about your process. Can you give me sort of a, a, a bird's eye view of the order of operations from conception to, to sure. research to – and then your writing process? Yeah. Um, so when I sort of get to the point – after a book has come out, I, there's usually a year when I don't write, when I'm just reading a lot, promoting. I'm just sort of not in the writing process. But I am always casting around for ideas. I'm traveling the world as I promote and sort of saying, well, that's a pretty interesting thing. You know, this this underground whatever it is in, in Iceland. And it's kind of a double-edged sword because I like to keep my topic secret. So when I research, it used to be that I could go to a museum and talk to a curator and nobody would care. They, they you know, But now, you know, if, if I go to, you know, the Uffizi and want to talk to the curator about a specific painting, I need to know that there may be an article in the paper tomorrow <laughs> saying Dan Brown was here looking at the following Botticelli. So it becomes a little bit of a cat and mouse game, and it's, it's a lot of fun. So there will come a point when I sort of decide, okay, Dan, it, it's time to write another book. And by that point, I usually have enough choices of what I call worlds. Where is this going to be set? And I don't necessarily mean Paris. I might mean brain surgery <laughs> or finance, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and I'll say, well, I, I want to write a thriller set in the world of finance. Okay, well, I don't know a lot about finance, and I'm going to need to learn a lot. So I'm going to reach out to contacts and find somebody who can bring me down to New York and and show me how it all works and give me a sense of of some of the moral gray areas. Then I will immediately set out to find characters. You have to find somebody who's an expert in finance. Maybe you take a, a page from John Grisham's book, and it, it's it's like the firm. It's it's a young broker who who gets in with the wrong people, whatever it is. Right. And uh, you immediately need to find the antagonist. You've, the villain is even more important than the hero because the villain defines the action. If it weren't for the villain, there would be no conflict. As you start to populate this world with characters, you start to create a plot. And you create, uh, usually create a finale first, which is almost invariably the hero conquering the villain, good conquering evil, morality over immorality, those sorts of things. I will write an enormous structure, usually about 100 pages long, for this novel. And once all of that is done, you know, then just comes, you know, I hate to think of it as a grind, but it is. It's two or three years of getting up at 4 a.m., uh, walking to the other end of the house where there's no, no internet, no phone, no nothing, sitting down at my desk and starting to put words on the page. And, you know, one every, every 10 words is... Is works and stays, and, and you know, for, for every one page you read a novel, I threw ten out. I get it wrong, get it wrong, get it wrong, and finally get it right. Since uh, your your books have been successfully adapted into films uh, that have been wildly successful, how does that impact your writing process and you know your conception of plot and everything? Yeah. Now, are you thinking, oh, this could be cinematic? Um, you know, I'm I'm not really. Uh, you know, I wrote I wrote books a long time before Tom Hanks with Robert Langdon. I've been very very lucky to have Tom Hanks play Robert Langdon. He's, he does an amazing job. Is he who you envisioned? Uh, no, who, who, no, was there an actor you know, that the, you sort of envisioned? There wasn't an actor. I, I just it, he's sort of a conglomerate of many different people. You know, I, I think in Da Vinci Code, he's, he's referred to as you know Harrison Ford and Harris Tweed. Sort of, you know, he's 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 professorial, but you know, but handsome and uh, you know he's sort of. He's sort of the guy you wish you could be if you're in the world of academia. You've got to put a little of yourself in every hero. It's, it's vicarious living through, through a much better version of yourself, somebody who's more daring. And I've had funny moments when I, I had a woman once uh, say, 
you know, are you Robert Langdon? And I gave my usual answer, like, no, you know, he's the guy I wish I could be. He's smarter. He's, he's all this stuff. And he said, well, how can he be smarter? Because everything he says you had to think of. And I had to point out that when Robert Langdon walks by a painting and just glances over and gives a perfect, you know, 30-second soliloquy, like, that took me three days to write and research. <laughs> so trust me, he's a lot smarter than I am. How do you measure success for yourself? In the simplest of terms, do I enjoy what I do when I get up every morning? Do I wake up excited to get to my desk or, or whatever it is I'm doing that day? If the answer is yes, I, I feel successful. And what about once you've delivered a book, a product, then how do you, do you just, at this point, do you even care if it's successful? Oh, yes, you do. You pretend you don't, but of course, <laughs> you care a lot, of course. You know, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I've got a, a lot of fans who've really enabled me to do what I love for a living. I, I'm able to afford to write. And so uh, there is a feeling of obligation to make sure that what I write, they enjoy. And if they do, I, I, it makes me happy. And if they don't, I, I'm uh, concerned about that. So I've been, I've been fortunate so far that the books have been well received. And, and finally, what is one piece of advice you would give someone that wants to have a career like yours? To be patient, to continually work. Just there is no substitute for hard work. And the, the thing that people forget is when they get insecure and when they get frustrated that they stop working. And you have to work through those moments. And you just say, well, this novel didn't work. Let's try the next one. Let's try the next one. Whatever, whatever business you're in, to be patient and to not let your impatience interfere with your process. Well, we will patiently await your next project. Uh, Dan Brown, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. That was Business Insider's Graham Flanagan interviewing Dan Brown. Thanks for listening to This Is Success from Business Insider. Our show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Sarah Wyman. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer, and I'm Rich Filoni. I've got one final insight from Dan Brown that might make you rethink your perception of the people you admire most. I think a lot of successful people can't believe they've been this lucky, can't believe they've been this successful. Uh, they know they've worked hard. They know they're good at what they do, but they feel very grateful. And I think there's a little bit of a, let's just hope nobody finds out, you know, that you really, <laughs> you really, uh, you've been so fortunate that this isn't all hard work, that, all, that some of it is luck. And I think in success, luck always plays a role. And I also believe that the day you forget that is the day things start to go badly for you. So I, I try to stay grateful. Next week, we've got a special masterclass of our own. We'll be hearing from previous guests about the role of partnerships in their careers. Working with others can be complicated. We've had physical fights. We've thrown each other to the ground. I mean, I think there are times when we disagree, but I think we have a tremendous amount of mutual respect for each other. And then Cameron would be like, what the fuck? Like, why doesn't he like that? It's so stupid. And, and I would be like, I don't know. I'm just like the in-between here. Subscribe to This Is Success in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to catch that episode and explore our archive. Please leave us a rating and write a review. It really helps others find the show. This Is Success is a production of Insider Audio.